Hello and welcome to episode three of the Instant Junk podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Jill. And on this episode we'll be looking at Spike Lee's latest film, Black Klansman. And for our streaming watch we'll be looking at the Shudder exclusive Small Town Killers. And for our review rewind we'll be going back to the 1980s to look at the John Landis classic, The Blues Brothers. Did I just hear you use your real name? Oh, motherfucker. <laughs> motherfucker amateur hour. That's your real name, right? Is it, is it Ron Stallworth, right? Isn't that his real name? That. Well, good luck, Ron, with your new redneck friend. <laughs> this week's cinema review is the latest Spike Lee movie, Black Klansman, starring John David Washington, Adam Driver, Laura Harrier, and Topher Grace. The movie is based on the 2014 memoir, Black Klansman, by Ron Stallworth. Right. Where to start? Yeah. Well, speaking as white privileged woman, um, <laughs> I was actually quite surprised I didn't feel uncomfortable at all because Spike Lee has actually managed to make it so that it wasn't just white people against black people. It was um, basically a certain section of white people who are not very well characterised, shall we say. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a, I mean, I'm not usually... A massive Spike Lee fan. Sometimes I find his films just a little bit too much to take. As speaking as a brown person, <laughs> and uh, you know, this one actually gave me a lot of food for thought. I really enjoyed it. I mean, I do enjoy his films, but sometimes they're just a bit too cerebral in the moment. Mm. Um, and this one was quite, but also I think it forces the you know the watcher to sit back and think mm. about what's been going on now, what has been going on in the past. Mm. I think the way that him and, you know, everyone else that's written it, Kevin Wilmot and Charlie Watchell, David Radnowitz, how they've they've managed to take Ron Stallworth's memoir mm. and relate it to the current political climate. Yeah. I think... Yeah, it's, it's a lot to talk about. I think we could probably talk about mm. this for a couple of hours. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> basically the memoirs cover Ron Stalwell's time in the Colorado Springs Police Department. He was the first African-American detective within the Colorado Springs Police Force. And of course, his first big major assignment, which he kind of took upon himself, was to go infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, yeah. I really, really want to read the book. I heard about this book years ago. Mm. And it came out, and I uh, sadly haven't got round to reading mm. it. So as soon as it's filmed, I was like, oh, yeah, definitely have to get this book, and I have to watch the film. And, I mean, if anyone knows me, they know I love anything to do with infiltrating the KKK <laughs> and understanding what drives these absolute fuckwits. And the fact that, you know, a black guy managed it with the help of, you know, a white guy, because, uh, let's be realistic, he's not going to be able to just walk in and... Yeah. I don't think he's welcome to the cross burnings. That's... Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely not for that. I mean, they did invite him in the end, didn't they? <laughs> Kinda. <laughs> um, not in the way you wanted, though. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. I mean, in comparison to the book, there's a few characters that weren't in the book as such. So you've got Adam Driver's character, Flip. Yes, um, there was um, an officer who did pretend to be Ray, but he wasn't called Flip, and he he didn't have the same drives and issues mm. as Adam Driver's character did. Yeah, Adam Driver was playing Flip. Will what was his last name? It was just known as Flip, wasn't he? <laughs> he was Flip. Yes, <laughs> um, but obviously Flip was a Jewish man. He was a he was a Jewish man who could pass 
as, as a, a non-Jewish person. Yeah. Which I thought was, that was one of the main bits when they had that discussion in the film that really, really spoke to me mm. and kind of opened my eyes to how I kind of live my life and my personal. Mm. So that was that was definitely like flag one where I was like, oh, oh, that, that's got me right in the yeah. feels. I think it was the bit where he talks about he's never thought about being Jewish before. He's never he's never described himself as Jewish, and now he can't stop thinking about being Jewish. Especially as um, one of the other characters in the clan, Felix, is literally at him all the time. You're Jewish. You're Jewish. Prove you're not Jewish. And having to also infiltrate that life and talk in language mm. that you don't want to use. Yeah. In language that you find awful. Abhorrent. It's draining, and you can tell that Flip is beginning to just mentally get drained. Whereas mm. Ron is, he's a little bit away from it. He can yeah. prank basically over the phone. Mm. He can enjoy himself doing yeah. that. I mean, this is the key thing, though. Ron Stolworth is—he very stupidly used his real name, which yeah. I thought was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it's the whitest name. Yeah. I mean, come on. That is true, but it's just the fact that he, where he was so, even though he started all this and he, he did start the infiltration, he wasn't the body behind it. He was the voice. He was not the body. So there, he was distant from it. Whereas Paul Flip was basically, literally, not deep in this. Yeah. It was him who was going to get shot in the face if it all went south. Goy <laughs> nearly did, didn't he? Yeah, oh my God. That was a, that was actually a really tense moment with the lie detector scene. Oh my God. Uh, where Felix, so they had introduced Flip or Ron mm. as they were, you know, they knew him as the clan, um, to the rest of them mm. uh, in Felix's house. And Felix takes Ron down to his basement. I think it was a side room. It was a basement. And, Which uh, is never good when someone takes you down no, to a basement. And shows him his guns and then takes him to another side room and locks the door and basically is about to lie detector him mm. because he truly believes that Flip is Jewish. Ron begins to panic and throws a mighty old rock through the window mm. upstairs into the green group of other Ku Klux Klan members, which freaks out oh, the wife. Oh. oh, we'll get to her. And yeah, that was so tense. I thought, well, it, I know it's not going to happen because there's another hour of this film to go. Yeah. Can't take him out this soon. But there was a lot of little turns that just got you. There was a proper tension moments as well. And all of them um, centred around Adam Driver's flip. Poor fucker. <laughs> and... It's just, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this because obviously Adam Driver is playing a Jewish man infiltrating the Ku Klux Klan. And, you know, that's pretty damn big considering, you know, most, obviously you had the racial slurs against black people, but there was hefty fucking racial slurs against Jewish people as well. That They didn't shy away from those either. No, I don't I don't think they shied away from any racial slurs. Racial slurs regardless of race, really. Yeah. It was, it was everywhere. I learned some new words. I, I wish I hadn't. Um, <laughs> I, I won't use them. I mean, I learned some new words I didn't know existed, by the way. It was a film. I mean, you're talking about the Ku Klux Klan. It's, they're not, you know, a fucking sewing group. They are awful in every way, shape and form. But I think this film really did capture the kind of people that get kind of hoodwinked into them. Yeah, I mean, the, the group that he meets were... Not all of them were thick. I mean, there was no, one, the mouth was, breather. Um, you had the mouth breather who was basically... The <laughs> yeah, he's like the quintessential redneck div. Uh, he was the one who was dropped on his head as a child repeatedly. Yeah. 
Um, and then you had Felix, who was probably yeehaw! Yeah, he was the terrifying, could shoot anyone at any one moment and didn't mm. really give a fuck. Yeah. And then you had, uh, gosh, what was his name? The one that they met on the phone, the one he actually had. Walter, who was the more intelligent one. Well, he was the one who was doing it to gain more power. I mean, when Walter introduces himself to Flip, he goes on about, I was beaten up by black men and my wife was savage. Yeah. yeah. And even then, it's like, no, nah, he's bullshitting. That yeah, I happen. didn't really believe that. I was no. like, no, you're just being a dick. Yeah. It was literally bullshit. This was to get the sympathy card, to get him to be leader, because... He wanted to lead something. It was, it was basically a ragtag group of people. Yeah who were brought together through a mutual hatred, but also the need to be part of something. The need to belong is quite overwhelmingly strong, but it's also... The thing about most racist groups is they're looking for someone to blame. And scapegoats. And they... Ku Klux Klan have two perfect ones, black people and Jewish people. Yep, and then you've got the wife who just wants to please her husband, I think. Oh, Felix she, oh. could have told her absolutely anything. Her name's Connie, by the way. He could have told her anything and she would have just believed it. I think Connie is one of the greatest ever advertisements for sterilisation. <laughs> I despise that woman. I saw this movie twice and both times I wanted her to die. Oh, at one point I honestly thought... So, I guess you guys could probably work out that we're probably not going to do our usual and go through every single bit of the film just because there's so much to discuss. Mm. This film is I think you could, the best way to discuss this film is to talk about what it represents rather than yeah. each scene. And there's a bit towards the end yeah. where Connie has been given a task mm -hmm. and she's planting some C4 near the house of the love interest of Ron. Yeah, who is also the president of the local university's black society. Yep, that's correct. Yeah. And... She goes to do this and she can't fit it in the letterbox and you're thinking, oh, how dumb is this woman? Part of me was like, if she just got to accidentally pop this switch, because you put a C4 and a switch and all you just do is pop the switch and the C4 blows up. So she couldn't fit in this letterbox. Time's getting, a, you know, a bit dire. And, oh God, what is her name? Patrice returns home yes. with her friend and... Connie runs across the road, Patrice goes into the house, then Connie runs to Patrice's car, mm. and she's trying to get this C4 underneath the car, and then Ron turns up mm -hmm. to arrest her, and Connie does a runner. And at this point, you don't know where she's put the C4, you know for like fine well she's not left it yeah. in the letterbox, but it's either in the car... Or on her. On her. And she's running, and I'm thinking, oh, it's going to be on her. Come on. <laughs> but then Ron tackles her, and... It just gets really messy. Yeah, because more cops turn up and... She off. screams rape. And, and the assault. cops won't believe that he's actually an undercover cop because, you know, racism. Yep. And, yeah, it becomes a bit of a clusterfuck. Yeah, you've got three different points. So then you've got the house tension where you're like, oh, Patrice needs to get out of the house, something's going to happen. Mm. You've got this scuffle that's going on where Connie's screaming blue murder, mm. Ron's being basically arrested. arrested and beaten, and you're like, is the C4 over that side? Is it in the house? And then you've got this car where um, Felix... So because Connie fucked up, really, and they heard that the police had been called to the original place where it was meant to be, Felix has got, you know, they've gone to plan B, and Felix is coming down next to the car, and you're like, oh, what's Felix going to do? Is he going to 
Well, so there's three points and you're just like, oh, what one is it? What one is it? And then you've also got Flip coming down in the car to rescue Ron mm. and to help the situation. And then Felix has the detonator. Oh, it's a beautiful moment. Oh. And he just presses the detonator and it was under the car. Off it goes. Spoiler level. Like, off it goes. <laughs> Taking <laughs> Felix, the mouth breather, and some random army guy with him. Yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately not Connie, but she goes to prison and probably becomes someone's bitch. Yeah, hope. Well, she hasn't oh, got shit. brains. Well, she hasn't got a brain cell. You can't shift someone that stupid. It's not yeah, fair. It's not it's fair. Easy. It's, it's too easy. You need a challenge. Come on, she she's a waste of skin. Nah, if I was in prison, she'd be my bitch. She'd be running my errands for me. <laughs> <laughs> and she'd probably do it with a smile. Indeed. Um, I think this film is, like you said, there's many different flashpoints in this film. There is so much going on. The overall feeling of the film is that history has repeated itself. Yes. Because there is this bit where he's, uh, not his chief, but his superior on the detective desk Mm. takes him downstairs and and talks about David Duke, who is played by Topher Grace in this. And it's obviously, Topher Grace was the Grand Wizard, but he also became the president was no he wasn't the president he was the oh gosh what was it what was national it? director yeah i think yeah it was they gave him quite a an official title a very they? official title but he was basically the grand wizard in a cheap suit and basically his superiors telling him look this guy has aspirations for politics this man has aspirations to become president one day and ron stalwer turns around and says no that will never happen and um, as a viewer, you're you're kind of sitting uncomfortably in your seat because with obviously the stuff that's happened in the past year, um, with the president that's currently sitting in the White House and the rise of the far right in the states, you're like, don't be so fucking naive, man. No, 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 no. Don't, don't. Yeah, it's... it was it was nearly a fourth wall moment, though, wasn't it? You yeah. expect them to just turn to the camera and wink. Like, yeah, this oh. is what's happened. Mm. And it's um, it's quite scary. It is terrifying, and I have to say, Topher Grace played his part beautifully. He's very good. I think he's I think he's rescued himself from a Spider Man a little yeah. bit. Oh, he's redeemed himself completely, and this must have been a really tough role for him to play. It was. He um, actually did an interview, I can't remember what publication it was, where he said that after filming it, it was just such a relief. Mm to speak these words that he didn't believe in and to have to get into that character, he said, was really, really draining. Yeah. The thing is, it's the guy who played Felix has actually been in another film where he's played a skinhead. (laughs) So maybe this guy's a character actor for those kind of roles. I mean, to be fair, I did think he was Cypher out of The Matrix for ages until you told me otherwise. For a second there, I thought... He was the guy who played Hicks from Aliens. Because <laughs> he, he was so many people. Yeah, it, for a second there, I thought he was the guy who played Hicks, and I'm like, no, no, not you! Don't do this to me, Michael Biehn. Uh... Michael Biehn. But no, it's um, definitely the two standouts for me were Adam Driver, just because of the fucking emotional tour de force he had to go through with his character. Because it was a roller coaster for him. Because you, you, when you first meet Flip, he doesn't give a shit. No, he doesn't. It, it's. I think all the characters, 
all the main characters were really, really well played because you had Flip, who was kind of like this super cool, don't really give a fuck, with his little uh, squad mate, who, mm. and they'd go out and they would go undercover a yeah. lot, and they, you know, they knew what they were doing. And then by the end of it, he's having to question his own being. Yeah, like what what have I spent my time doing? What is actually happening in the world? Yeah, and you know, am I playing a part in it? Am I? How do I help? Yeah. And by, you know, first he doesn't want to help. And then he's just like, this is actually big. We yeah. need to do something. And then you've got um, John David Washington, who I thought was uh, brilliant. Yeah. Oh, he played the part perfectly. You know, he was very believable as someone who was trying his best to make the world a better place. He was very human as well. Yes. He, there was elements of, like, like comedy in it. Yeah. And he played it just like, I suppose... It wasn't like a character. If you told me that that's who he was and he had worn that afro every day for the rest mm. of his life, I'd be like, yeah, sure. And He's it's, Ron Starworth. Yeah. I mean, the character of Ron Starworth was just... Obviously, this came from his memoirs. So as you're looking through his eyes, it was very well done. And it did make him a very human, a very... You kind of knew every thought process that was going through his head. And I think, you know, Spike Lee managed to do that really well. He was very relatable. Yes, especially very. In the, especially in the final scene. Oh! With the prank call to David Duke. Oh, all throughout the film, um, obviously, uh, Ron Starworth initiated the call with the local chapter leader. Mm. And in order to get his card sooner, because obviously, it, when you're in the clan, you have to have your card. Otherwise, oh, you can't go to the Vernons. Because, you know, they're, they're exclusive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculous. It's a shit show. Um, but in his mission to get his card sooner... He manages to get on the phone to David Duke himself. Yes. And, you know, there's back and forth between them. And David Duke has no fucking clue that he's talking to a black man, which is absolutely hysterical. Oh, it's the, it's the now infamous line where he's like, oh, I know when I'm talking to a black person because of the way they talk. And they're ours. They're ours. They're I was like... Have you ever listened to Sean Connery? <laughs> Jesus. Sean Connery, the original brother. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, just at the end when Starworth does the last call. Oh, God. <laughs> and that was like, I think he spoke for everyone across all colour divides and everything at that point, as, especially when he flipped to the phone receiver. Yeah. It was just, that, that was so beautiful. It was poetic. <laughs> the, the other great bit between the real Ron Stalworth and David Duke is the bit that actually happened in real life as well, which was the photo scene. <gasps> so that actually happened. There's that a is, Polaroid of that? That is an actual Polaroid of that. Oh. So that moment, there's a moment where um, the fake Ron Stalworth is becoming a full-fledged member. member. Um, now, in the book... It's not that, so that's not where it takes place. Uh, where it takes place is um, David Duke actually just comes to Colorado. Colorado and he has to, the real Ron Stallworth has to protect David Duke. As you did. In the scene in the film, it's similar, just under a different setting. So Ron Stallworth goes up to David Duke and is like, no one's going to believe me. I have to take a picture. Will you do it? And David Duke goes, if I must. So David Duke, first of all, 
in real life, he tries to take a picture with David Duke and David, you know, it's like, don't fucking touch me. And then just as someone takes the photo, he puts his arm around him and there is an actual real Polaroid of that moment. Oh, and beautiful. they do it in this film and it's just... Oh. It is one of the most beautiful <laughs> scenes ever. And then it's just like, what are you going to do? Beat me up, I'm a police officer, I'll just arrest you. Yeah, it was beautiful. <laughs> it was absolutely beautiful. But yeah, that was actually a real life scene. Fantastic. <laughs> that, Ron Starworth, he should get medals. I think he has one somewhere. Maybe for, for that moment. Because that's what he should get. <laughs> should we make for? him one and send it to him? Yes, let's do that. <laughs> God knows what we'll make it out of. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some candy wrappers somewhere. It's fine, we can eat enough gold coins and then <laughs> just make something out of the wrappers. It's fine, it's fine, I've got some string. Uh, if we go back to characters though, Patrice, I, I didn't warn to her. No. She's, I mean, she actress... was made. She was made for the film, by the way. She wasn't yeah. anything. I'm kind of glad about that because anyone who ignores warnings for their own safety is a moron. Well, she learnt. She learnt. <laughs> oh, the hard way. Yeah, she learnt. Um, it's good that the film had a strong black female in there, but she could have done with being just a little bit more streetwise. Well, I just think she was just unnecessary. I can understand why they, you know, films really need to have a love interest. They don't. He know. didn't need to have a love interest. Uh, if anyone was ever familiar with the original story, you don't really need it. Yeah. I think the friendship between real Ron Stolworth and Flip in the in the film would have carried it. Yeah. I think you could have injected a few more scenes between them. Yes. Um, and the other guy who I honestly have forgotten his name. That's really bad. All I know is he's um, Hashimi's brother in real life. Is he? Yeah, he's Steve. Because I kept, I kept looking and going, you're not Steve. You're not Steve, but he's, you look like Steve. He's Steve Hashimi's brother. <laughs> um, I didn't even know he had one. It's like Clint Howard all over again. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there's another slightly Bashimi Clint Howard out there. <laughs> but yeah, Patrice just, she was basically just a love interest. She was just a Set way. Dressing. Yeah, she was just a way to have that final trifecta scene play out. Yeah. Because it wasn't that dramatic. No. It wasn't that dramatic in real life. In real life, he managed to take down most of them, including David Duke. So, so yeah. Yeah, so rather than have David Duke sitting on the end of a phone in the last scene, David Duke probably would have been taken away by the police instead. Yes. So it was a bit... That would have been nicer to see. Yeah, but I don't think with the overall message that was trying to be portrayed, it would mm. have worked, because right at the end you had a lot of modern day... Oh, Jesus, that... Yeah. Oh, God, um, one of the bits that actually choked me up, and I think this was a masterstroke by um, Spike Lee, and it actually had the real life footage from uh, was it Charlottesville? Yep, all of that, all the protests, all the protests, yeah, all of the protests, but it also had the protest where Heather Meyer, yep, uh, where she sadly was killed, and it was actually a really nice tribute to her yeah they did it at the end as well they uh they they made a tribute to her which was really really lovely and it kind of put everything that you've just witnessed into a modern perspective so you're already sat there going oh this is quite this is this is happening yeah um you know you're watching it you're going yeah it's a film yeah it's making points and then you watch it and you go shit shit got real this yeah this is happening and what are we doing about it what can be done about it if history continues to repeat itself yeah 
all you can continue to do is bring awareness. They had um, a gentleman discuss uh, the, the, the brutal flogging and murder of, oh Christ, I've forgotten his name. I'm probably going to get shot down for that. <laughs> um, but a young kid called Jesse, yeah. who was basically arrested and tried and found guilty of rape and murder mm. for a crime he didn't commit. Yeah. Uh, just for being a black kid yeah. who was in love with a white woman. Yeah. And they discussed in great detail. So this was interplayed with the clan flips. initiation. Yeah, flips initiation into the clan. So they're kind of ritualistic ways of justifying what they do. Mm. And then you've got this guy talking about something that actually happened. Yeah. And with proof that this happened because people yeah. took pictures, they sold them as postcards of this horrific yeah. ordeal. And sold ashes as um, souvenirs. Yeah, you know, they, they did the worst things. And then you've got this juxtaposition of this church-ish ceremony, yeah. this religious ceremony. And then at the end they watch uh, Birth of a Nation. And they they watch it like it's a popcorn film, like it's... No, they watch it like it's... Uh, that's what Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah, they're they're, they're you know, hollering at it. They're literally... Eating popcorn, shouting at it, going, yeah, kill him. Oh, oh and it's just like they... <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, a, it's a frustrating, very, very frustrating moment. And then yeah. you've gone through that, and then at the end you've got this real, this real situation that's happened because these two instances actually happen on probably a daily basis yeah you know behind closed doors yeah people are justifying their hate yeah and it's you know it was the that was a perfect scene to me because of the juxtaposition you've got literally the Ku Klux Klan doing their you know dick waving ceremony you know yeah. to make themselves look good and then you've got this elderly gentleman basically saying about what was probably the most terrifying time of his life where he had to hide while he watched his friend get fucking flogged stabbed burnt and, to death yeah uh, you know, watch it like all the kids that for that because they let the kids out of school so that they could spectate, and it all comes together that it you know all of this was done because of this one film, Birth of a Nation, because Birth of the Nation it basically gave birth to the Ku Klux Klan, and it was Birth of the Nation that it gave people the impression that black people are inferior, mm. and it is just how that one horrible piece of celluloid had created these two horrible things. Yep. And, you know, at the end of the scene, you've got the Ku Klux Klan screaming white power, and you've got um, the gentleman leading a uh, a chant of black power. And it is really quite... It's powerful because, obviously, the black power movement was just about equality and not letting this shit happen again, whereas white power is to sustain this shit. Yeah, it's sad. The whole film, it's got such a deep message and it doesn't do it in a way that you would expect especially Mm. in a Spike Lee film you kind of come out and you don't feel like you've been force fed any real agenda I guess each character as well is a different type of person Mm. because you've got Walter who wants just power you've got the mouth breather Ivanhoe which I realise is his name just doesn't particularly want anything Felix wants war you've got Ron, who just wants to be a policeman, he just wants to help. Yeah. He doesn't particularly see race. He he understands he's a black man, he understands the troubles, but mm. he was just very focused on doing good. Yeah. But you had him doing that, then you had Patrice, who was so focused, so intent on fighting 
this the man. The, the man and the war and the idea that Ron being a policeman is something she couldn't handle because she couldn't get the idea that you can still do good and be black and yeah. be a policeman. She There's a point at the end where she was just about to break up with him because he wasn't going to give up his job. Yeah, even though he did do good in his job, he was making a positive change. It wasn't enough. She didn't believe that he would be able to make enough. And maybe if you fast forward into real life, maybe it isn't enough. But you've got to have someone somewhere. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, he's fucking trying and doing a lot more than what she was. Yeah. <laughs> it's this, it's there's a, there's a character for everyone. And if you watch it, you'll find yourself in that film. Yeah. Somewhere. You definitely will find yourself. And it's, you know, I, I will say this is a masterstroke by Spike Lee. This should be a film that lives on for years to come because it speaks on so many levels. It does. It makes no one feel ashamed about what skin they're in. It doesn't go for skin. It goes for what's in your head, what your ideals are. Yeah. And that's the thing. And I do think everyone, no matter what side of the divide they are, they should see this. Because if you're on the, on the side that would probably go with the clan members, you need to question why you're doing that. And for the other side, you need to question why you're fighting. The film is empowering and, mm. if anything, hopefully it will educate people into working out why things happen, why things continue to not reappear. And hopefully, I'm not going to say this film's going to change the world, but I think it's definitely one of those good films that can go out there and change some opinion. That's how you do it. You, you can't change the world, you know, overnight, but you can make the baby steps in order to make change permanent. And that's the key thing. Go watch Black Klansman. And watch it in a cinema as well, I think. Yeah. Give, give Spike Lee your money on this because, you know what, he's fucking earned this. It's definitely something that you'll be absorbed in better than if you watch it at home. In our next episode, we'll be heading to the cinema to check out Upgrade, a science fiction body horror written and directed by Lee Wanell of Saw fame. Hvem må anbefale mig til jer? Ikke nogen. Det fandt det på Price Runner, du er den billigste. I vil skilles. Uh, ja, du ved, efter nogle år kan det godt gå her og blive lidt bulgarsk. Ja, det bliver sgu lidt kedeligt. Utroskab, eller noget af det? Ikke bemindre det der at danse rundt med en svanske svensker, kan kaldes utroskab. Så, <laughs> <laughs> streaming film this episode is Small Town Killers. It's a Dutch film released in 2017, streamed on Shudder. I guess... It's a bit of a, a change from our usual yes. our usual film. We thought we'd try something new. This is a little black comedy about two guys who run a business together who've basically had enough of their lives and their wives and hire a assassin to get them gone, really, mm -hmm. so they can enjoy their money in peace and not pay alimony and rather than divorce their wives. <sighs> How did it feel, Sam, watching this film? Well, I didn't so much watch it as read it. I like a subtitled film, but it can kind of distract when you're trying to figure out what's going on on yeah. the screen. I mean, I think the basic premise of this was just basically two guys weren't being satisfied or satisfying their wives. It was all very sexual, isn't it? It's all basically oh, down to sex. Like the first half an hour, I was just talking about humping. sex. Humping, yeah. bums, penises, <laughs> everything, the whole shebang. Yeah, it was very European as far as its sexuality was concerned. Yeah, you felt a bit prudish. <laughs> 
Oof. I say. Um, <laughs> but no, um, these guys obviously aren't getting what they want from their wives. Um, and their wives are just taking out their sexual frustrations in salsa classes. Yeah, because <sighs> most jilted wives seem to do, apparently. I thought jilted wives just cheat on said husband. Well, usually with the salsa teacher, but the salsa teacher in this occasion was gay. Yes, he didn't play on that field. No. But no, after a drunken argument in a restaurant that left the men humiliated, one of them drunkenly suggests offing said wives. After more drinks, one of the gentlemen actually hires a hitman. So the two guys are called Ib and Edward. Yes. So Ib is like this large, sort of pseudo-jolly, rotund man who has a very small wife and people kind of take the mickey because he's a big man, she's a little woman. Yeah. And then you've got Edward, who, he's, he kind of reminded me of a really poor man's Peter, not Peter Sarsgaard, is it Peter Sarsgaard? No, the other one, the dad. Skellen? Yeah. And he's basically the brains of the operation and he's the one that gets a little bit drunk and decides to Google Hitman and then go yeah. down a rabbit hole until he finds someone to yeah. do it for Because apparently Google does that for you. Without getting special branch or whatever the Dutch equivalent is. Well, they were in some remote island or some... I don't know where they... It was, it was really remote. There seems to be yeah. only about four people. Yeah. And one restaurant. Yes. Um, And a policeman who just hounded them all day. Yeah. Can you blame him? No. I mean, they were shitbags. Uh, none of the characters were likeable. No. None of them. And anyway, Ib and Edward sort of lament the fact that Edward has done this and got an assassin. They shit themselves, but they think, come on, that's just, let's just get on with it. Let's go and do it. Yes. So they go and they pick up Igor playing the most stereotypical Russian human ever. Drunk as a fucking skunk. Constantly. I mean, they, they didn't really want him. They couldn't really send him back. And the whole time I was just going, just kill him. Yeah. He sleeps a lot. Yes. Get him poison his drink and kill him. Done. No one gives a fuck about this assassin. And he, he was an ethical assassin as well. He was killing because people were unhappy. So yes. he wanted to put them out of their misery. Yes. Which was um, <laughs> a novel concept. Yeah. I mean, there was, a, there was a strange scene where they get into a cab and it, there's a... A Muslim cab driver. Yes. And then they get into this weird sort of racist slanging match where Igor is calling him Taliban and yes. the the cab driver's calling him basically Russian scum. Yes. And you're kind of like, oh, you're going to kill him, aren't you? Whatever. And Ib and Edward get out of the car because Ib can't deal with the negative vibes and has to throw up. They get back in and realise that Igor's stabbed the guy in the ear with a pen and now the guy's dead. Yes. Uh, it was it was how Igor was justifying it. It's okay, he's much happier now. He's with these 72 virgins. Oh, it's fine. The humour in this is incredibly dark. It's a very dark Oh, there was humor. some bits where I I considered myself to have a dark sense of humour, but there was bits in this film I'm like... Yeah, like that bit. <laughs> like the 72 virgins. I was like, oh, you. Oh, oh, no. There was teeth drying moments for me. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of... <sighs> Anyway, they Igor gets more pissed and then they take him to the cellar where apparently, because they own a building company, they sometimes keep Polish men down there. As you do. As you do. I mean, again, another bit. And Igor, the guys leave him and Igor gets up in the middle of the night as the wives come home and he sits down with them and has a drink and basically tells them... That he's there to kill them. But he doesn't realise that they're yeah. the wives. 
he's like, I'm waiting for them to come home, do you know? Because he doesn't know where he is. He thinks he's in a hotel lobby. It's a yes. fucking kitchen. It's, um, <laughs> we are not dealing with major brains in this film. No. no. No one is any cleverer than the next person in this film. And then the women obviously get freaked out. They run off. They get pulled over by the police. The 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 shit cop. The one policeman. Who and, ain't that good. No, and they want to go into the cell, obviously, because they want to be safe. And then they devise the same plan, which is to hire an assassin to kill their husbands, to teach them a lesson for hiring an assassin to kill them. <sighs> so they hire an assassin, Miss Nippleworthy. I mean... Nippleworthy. <laughs> and they hire her because she's a British person. Yes. And they get shit done and they're clean and yes. discreet, apparently. We're very good assassins. <laughs> uh, I'll give it a go. Um, <laughs> and Mary Poppins' nan comes up yes. the escalator. Oh, God. I quite like that scene because she comes up and the the airport guard kind of stops her and is like, can I see your bags? And he opens his bag in this sort of weird Pulp Fiction-esque moment. Yes. And then he's dead. Yes. And you're like, oh, how did he die? How did she kill him in a busy airport without yeah. anyone noticing? It's very weird. Yeah. And then, yeah, they get in a car with her and it's just, it's, it's more of the same thing. The, the whole film, I guess, is really Cohen-esque. Yes. It's kind of that sort of, you're waiting. Paper. Yeah, you're waiting for it to all just turn to shit, and you're mm. like, one of you's going to die, come yes. on, just get on with it. It's it's not a bad film, but it is quite predictable. And it's repetitive as well. Yes, there's, there's this one particular spot where they continuously drive to, Yes, the, the two husbands, to drive to in their yellow van, mm. to talk about whatever it is that they have to talk about. They always drive to this like bit of seafront, Yeah, and you're a bit like... You've already done that, mate. You don't need to do this because yeah. you've been driving around all day. You could have just had this conversation. In the car. In the car. You're in the car anyway. And, yeah, I guess... I mean... I don't even know if it's even worth continuing on with the plot because I, I guess our listeners could probably gather what would happen. You've got two assassins. Two, two couples. Yeah. And it's a bit Cohen-esque. Hilarity ensues. Yes. What gets me is there were some parts in this film that wasn't so much close to the knuckle as it actually took your knuckle out. What bit in particular got to you? Uh, it would be the gay salsa teacher and the mentally disabled waiter being a couple. Oh, I mean, I didn't have an issue with them being a couple. I, I had great issue with the way that they continuously just teased the poor disabled waiter. But it's called Bent as well, yes. which is really... Yeah. Mm. I mean, it was the fact that, I mean, obviously the, the gay salsa teacher was... He was not held in high regard as He was Swedish. Yes. He wasn't Dutch. Um, not Dutch, sorry, Danish. Yes. But it was the fact that he wasn't held in high regard and neither was Bent. No. And they just kind of... They took their two really poorly done stereotypes, their, poor, their poorly done tokens, and they put them together. That's what didn't sit right with me at ah. all. See, I, I didn't feel that way because there was a point later on in the film, so after you've seen them as a couple, yeah. Um, after the, the two husbands see them as a couple, and Ib turns to Edward and says, why did we bully Bent? Yeah. Why? What has he done? And it transpires that Bent wasn't always disabled. That uh, he was, used to be a very good footballer. I think they all must have gone to school together. Yeah. 
and he had chased a football into a motorway, into a highway, and he was away yes. for six months and then came back as he is now. Yes. And Ib said, Ib was basically saying, you know, this guy has lost everything, but yet is still the happiest person, and we've got everything, and yet we're still miserable. Yeah. How can we be so mean to him? And Edward's just being an asshole. Yeah, as he always is. And I, I think that bit kind of not quite justified why you had those the Swedish salsa dancer and and bent, but mm. it kind of gave them a little bit more prevalence. Mm. Yeah, you're just like, yeah, Bent deserves this happiness. Yeah, but that was after the reveal. Yeah, I mean the I reveal think... was played for last. It was yeah, bit... yeah, that's yeah. that's the bit that I was uncomfortable. Yeah. With. And the wine scene when you first meet him. Yeah. I really didn't like that. No, that was that was just kicking someone for kicking someone's sake. Yeah. Obviously, it does what it says on the tin. It is very black humour. Yeah. Nothing it's, is sacred in this, it's, I don't it's think. It's a pitch black humour. I mean, it wouldn't be out of place in a, a sort of a, a 70s. You'd think it'd be a 70s film or an 80s film. Yeah. It, it could easily slip in that way with the, the kind of language used. And maybe that is the language that is used commonly, mm. you know over there but it yeah i guess maybe we're a little bit more sensitive i don't think it's more sensitivity i think it's just the fact of oh hang on a second here that's that's not right i don't think it's sensitivity i think it's fair play yeah i guess you're right it's you know sensitivity would be me going how dare they do that (laughs) i could always write to them and tell them this is very bad no it's just you know, I think where we sit is what that is a real twattish move. Don't do that. But then again, maybe that's what they want us to feel. Yeah. I mean, it could be just the fact to reinforce the fact that Edward These guys is, are arseholes. Yeah. And they're damn right their wives don't want to fuck them. Yeah. It, at times it's a difficult watch and at times it's a really boring watch. Yes. It kind of has that sort of Fargo-esque, nothing really happens for long periods yeah. of time. And it's just lots of conversation. Mm. And it's, um, you know, when stuff does happen, it's very... Um, Shop, shop, shop. Yeah. So, like, you'll get moments where you're just going, oh, Christ. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, that happened. But you don't really see anything. So, even though it's on Shudder, it's not very gory. No, they have a section called Extreme. And that's where you see Human Centipede. This was just their slight horror comedy. And I wouldn't I can... even call it a horror, though. It's more like a comedy thriller type thing. Mm. I think it's because people actually did get killed. Yeah, but n- not all of them got killed on screen. No. Three, I think, overall got killed on screen. Yes. And they weren't particularly very gory. I don't know, the pen in the ear. That was kind of after effect. You don't see the pen go in. Yeah. And then you've got someone getting shot. But yeah. really far away. Yeah. And then the penultimate scene where one person gets cyanide poisoning and the other one gets an axe in the chest. You don't see the axe going because they're in shadows. Yes. Oh, and, God. I mean, I guess that's how they save money on special effects. Yes. It was very to not have any. Yeah. To not have any special effects. Yeah. Well, I think this film was meant to be made in one location and then they found out that they wouldn't be eligible for the filmmaking grant. So they had to move oh. location in order to get the grant. So, yeah. That's probably why we didn't see much on-screen death. It's mostly aftershocks. Yeah. Okay, that makes okay. But yeah, it's it was very farcical, and there was times when I was just like, Is something going to happen now because you've been talking a lot, but you're not saying anything. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was basically sat, like you were sat listening to banter that you didn't give a fuck about. Yes, I mean it was like the first half an hour. I would say they mm. kept going on about banging. And then, obviously, shit hits the fan when they actually hire the assassin, and I think sex was the last thing on their mind. 
Yeah. And then obviously towards the end they realise that they all do love each other, that this was all a huge mistake. Yeah. And they uh, had to kind of fight for their lives by proving their love to each other. Yeah, because Igor loves a good happy ending. And not in a sexual way, but a genuine heartwarming. Yeah, so he moments. he was there to kill unhappy people. And they tried to have this film moment where I think Edward was lying on the floor trying to give him like a speech of like, do you really want to do this? And Igor just looks at him and goes, do you think this is a film? Yes. And Edward was like, yes, I hope this works. <laughs> and Igor's like, no. And sits him in front of his wife and is like, make her love you. you yeah. Know, tell her how much you... And eventually... It happens. Cause... I mean, I'm not overly convinced. Do I feel that even his wife, so even Grit, they do. Yes. They do. Because them two are the first ones to have genuine remorse over their actions. Yeah. Gretchen was, uh, you know, when she's digging the grave and going, I, well, I just want to be happy again. Yeah. And you actually genuinely feel that both of them were kind of led into this. Yeah, they're, they're not the, the alphas in the, in the no, pairings. No, not at all. And the alpha female in this. Ingrid. Ingrid is a fucking alcoholic. Oh, she loves a wine. God, and she loves two wine. <laughs> um, this is a genuine farce I mean the whole reason why they've gone for assassins instead of divorce is because they don't want to give up half of their money all their hidden stash money as yeah. well so it's literally it's cheaper to buy a hitman than it is to pay alimony yeah because you know love I and mean, I'm sure it's probably happened somewhere in the world a similar oh, situation I'm sure it happens everywhere <laughs> I mean, there was a really good scene. I don't know if you, you enjoyed it. Where um, So, Igor had said, I won't kill your wives if I hear from your wives that they're happy. Yes. And the guys were like, oh, fuck, how are we going to do this? So, they go and get some wigs and some dresses. <laughs> and they stand at a dark house and bring Igor in and pretend to be their wives. And you've got um, Ib, who's a, a large guy, like I said, and, but he's got a beard. So, he covers his mouth with the bottom of his wig and kind of talks through it. I mean, Eagle sees straight through it, but it's a good little bit of comedy, I think. Yes, and uh, Ig got a bit too into it. Yeah, he did. <laughs> um, but then, so Eagle is the Russian assassin. You've got our lovely British assassin. Oh, my God. I nearly couldn't say that. That is assassin. And she apparently, so she's duped them into thinking she was an, a nurse at Broadmoor. When we all, you pretty much know that she was not the nurse. No. Uh, she's she probably got, got tended to by the nurses. Indeed. And she's got this little bag of tricks, which I was really impressed. I was like, if I'm going to be a murderous psycho, I want a Mary Poppins bag full of tinctures and fucking scalpels. Wonderful. Mm. And she's going through, she's talking about all the things that she's got in her bag. She's like, I've got this, that will make his eyes pop out. Oh, I've got this, I cause it autumn leaves, where it renders someone, all their skins fall off. Yes. Like autumn leaves. And at that point, I think the wives kind of go, oh shit, what we got ourselves into. And yes. club her, essentially, with a light bulb and then a shovel. Yes. And they try and bury her and then they put her in the back of a car. This woman does not die. <laughs> Bit like Mary Poppins, really. And she goes on this rant as well about how British people <laughs> have issues with the human body. Like, I mean... It's kinda. Yeah, yeah. and have her sole purpose was to rid people of their human body. <laughs> oh my Christ, I forgot all about that. <laughs> I quite enjoyed it. I was like, yes, this is funny now. Uh, it's got its moments, this one. Don't don't let us bring it too far down. Um when it when it shines, it shines. Yes. But it's very long in between the shine bits. Yes. And it's also the fact that they like to change the languages halfway through. And oh gosh, that kept yes. through that kept throwing me because 
I'd be reading. And I'm not a fast reader. You'd be surprised to hear. <laughs> um, especially when I'm trying to concentrate on the action that's actually happening. So trying to read, trying to make note of what's happening. And then they change languages. And they'll be like, oh, okay, I can actually just watch that. Oh, fuck's sake, they changed back. Read, read, read. And that took me out of moments. Yeah, I think I was watching it with someone and they kept going, when they speak in English, why are they still subtitling? And I kind of just said, well, why stop? Yeah. That's more jarring, I find. Yes. When you're watching a subtitled film and then they start speaking English and they don't. Yeah. They some, The subtitles suddenly go because then, you know, the issue that you're suffering from is where are my eyes going? Mm. What am I yeah. looking at now? what's happening and yes. so they kept it going and I actually just kept reading the subtitles yeah. anyway so okay. I should have actually done that but yeah. uh, and it's also you know the fact that they actually kept subtitles going kept some continuity as well yeah if you're not a fan of subtitles then obviously I'm sure you probably won't want to watch this anyway but I think it's a it's a good little film mm. I think it's definitely worth watching if you're a Coen Brothers fan just to see how it's done elsewhere in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, this was 120 minutes. Yeah, it wasn't long at all. No, and it was, if you're looking for something to watch and you've got a shudder, I'd flip it on. Because mm. not everyone wants to watch Society. Yeah. Not everyone can handle Human Centipede too. So, you know, this, this is a good middle ground. Definitely. Give it a watch. And for our next streaming review, we are going to be going back to Shudder and we're going to look at Unearthed and Untold, The Path to Pet Cemetery. Hey, what's going on? Ah, those bums won their court case, so they're marching today. What bums? The fucking Nazi party. Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. Last episode, we mentioned that we would do a tribute to Aretha Franklin, and the film we chose was Blues Brothers, the classic 1980s American musical comedy film directed by John Landis, which also stars John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, along with a whole host of blues stars such as Ray Charles and James Brown. Should we just get into this? Go deep? Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to. It's, um... So this has actually been quite an awakening, well, I don't think it was an awakening for you. No. But it was for me. No. I mean, I, I'm going to put it out there. I have never really got behind Blues Brothers. I'm a massive Dan Aykroyd fan. Love him. I hate, hate this film. <laughs> but I watched it for you guys. I watched it for you. You took one for the team, and I thank you. <laughs> one of many, I'm assuming. <laughs> we could have be taking many. That's going to hurt. Um, need some lube. <sighs> We're going to need more than lube. So where do we start with this dirge? Um, I've got questions for you, by the way. As we go through, I'm going to just fire questions. <laughs> so the most going to be, why? <laughs> I, it should be noted that I, when I was younger, loved this film. I thought it was the best thing since sliced fucking bread. Um, re-watching it, I I realised I just like the music. But when it all started going south for me on the rewatch was from the beginning. Ugh. Now, I never realised I had such an aversion to used condoms. Um, <laughs> Does anyone enjoy them? I didn't think I'd literally go... <laughs> um, but I did. When um, the corrections guard was going through Jake's stuff, yeah. And there's a used condom in his personal belongings. Which really just sets the tone for this guy being a dirge of a human being. Um, I mean, the 80s was a dark time, if that's the quality of man that was getting used condoms yeah. wet. 
Yes. <laughs> Unused condoms used, I should yes. say. But you're introduced to Jake, you know, getting out of prison. And beyond the getting his stuff and making me go, ooh, um, he comes out and he's reunited with his brother Elwood, who's played by Dan Aykroyd. There's a kind of Jesus moment as well. Though. I mean, not for me just going, fucking Jesus. <laughs> but, like, as the... So Elwood's outside in the new Bluesmobile and the doors open to reveal the shadow of this oaf as he trundles out <laughs> and sits down in his fucking car. That's like, oh. I think the bit that kind of hit hit me got me down to earth in a thud was I used to think that Jake was cool. I used to think John Belushi was cool in this film. But his real first moments with Elwood is him moaning. Going, where's the Cadillac? Where's the real this? What's that? Like, bitch, you've been in prison for three years. Shut the fuck up, man. Yeah. You know, life went on outside the bars. Obviously, he's pissed off because uh, Elwood, obviously needing money to survive, because they have no redeemable skills. Yes, it seems. Um, had to swap out the prized Cadillac for a microphone. Yeah. Which he he was fine about it being used for a microphone, but what he really detested was the fact that the new Bluesmobile was an old police car, which I can sort of understand his point, coming out of prison, going into a police car. Yeah, I understand his point about That's that. That's quite the irony there. Yeah. But let's be honest. We we touched on our on our first ever episode how good police cars are, and yeah. you'd always want one if there's one available. And of course, Elwood proves how good this car is by jumping over a bridge. Continuity is really irritating there. Because yeah, because it the was bridge higher and lower, higher and yeah. lower. We're going to jump over the bridge. That gap is really small now. Yeah, and it was much higher before. Um, but the car's good. It makes it. Yes, and it, you know, Jake, knowing that he's lost this fight, so just get the lighter fixed. The lighter he chucked out the window, I hasten to add. Um, I mean, it's, they're not endearing characters. The first Edward is. Like is he? Is, is he? He's someone who's been without his brother for three years, and you kind and of got nowhere. I mean, he lives in a cupboard. Yeah, he's done nothing except find yes. some old man some cheese with. Yes. Yes. You kind of get the feeling that he's lost without his brother, which is sad, I know. But, it's sad, but, but I, it doesn't I, make him a better person. It doesn't make him a good person, but I kind of, I feel a bit sorry for him. And it's the fact that Dan Aykroyd wrote his character as well. I think there's meant to be some pitiful elements to him. You'd I, hope. I mean... Because that's how he came for us. I'm there to always be there for Dan Aykroyd, but I think this is definitely one of the weaker Dan Aykroyd creations. Mm. Anyway, let's not cry on that for too long. They're orphans, and yes. they have to go to... So, Jake had said that when he comes out, he was going to go and see the penguin. Yes. So they go and see the penguin in this uh, Roman Catholic orphanage. Yes. And unfortunately, it's not a lovable penguin like uh, Danny DeVito in Batman Returns. This is one <laughs> evil bitch. <laughs> I'm, I'm so, so many thoughts right now about Danny DeVito being a lovable penguin. <laughs> Compared to, compared to this one, yeah, he was lovable. What's wrong with a bit of BDSM penguin action there? It wasn't BDSM. The way that she was throwing around that switch. She probably does that <laughs> in the background, but for them to, it was not BDSM. That was grievous bodily harm. That was literally going to smack the shit out of you. 
I mean, I do now realise where I got fuck that noise from. <laughs> Why is you leaving fuck this noise? It's like, oh yeah, that's what Elwood says when he yes. has enough. Yes. And that is where that comes from. Yes. I learned. Yeah, but no, she is one evil bitch and... Is she evil or is she... A product just, of her environment? Or is she just sad that these two kids that she's raised are... Twats. Yeah, because that's probably. pretty much what she says. She's like, they want your dirty money and why are you both assholes? Yeah. But she raised them. That's Did her. she or was it the little man in the basement? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just imagine this little gimp in the face. <laughs> well, that she goes around switching up and being like, what are you doing to the boys? It is a Roman Catholic orphanage after all. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Catholic. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, this has gone dark. It's meant to be a lovable film. It's not. It's not a lovable film. <laughs> tripe. It's tripe. Oh, good Christ. Um, it's the right place for it. <laughs> anyway. So she's rejected them. They've gone downstairs talking to... We missed a bit. Oh, do we have to? Yes. Oh, they were given... Basically, their orphanage is going to shut down because they need five grand because some council worker has decided that, you know... They ain't paid enough tax. Yes. <laughs> Quite rightly tax. so. Pay more tax orphanage. Yes, because, you know, if you're raising, like... The Blues Brothers, yeah, you need to pay more tax because the tax money going to the prison, they need more. And all the, all the fucking property that they go around fucking destroying. Yes. Yes. You pay that money. Yes. I don't think 5000 would cover it, though, to be honest. No. So, um, yeah, basically they're told that their orphanage is going to shut down unless they get five grand. The penguin says, I don't want your five grand if it's dirty money. And they destroy a table falling down some stairs. Yeah, didn't even laugh. Well, it was just a fat joke in a table. I don't mind those, but I didn't laugh. I think because you wanted him to get hurt. He probably did get hurt, but he was probably too coked off his nuts to feel it. Yeah. Oh, this was John Belushi's proper coke phase. They had a coke budget. Yes. <laughs> oh, Jesus. No film ever. I mean, I'm sure there were other films that had coke budgets, but I mean, this guy... What, yeah, not the... his own personal one. Yeah. Uh, what was the, what's the story that... He was always so coked out that every now and again, or majority of the time, Dan Aykroyd had to go out and find him. Yes. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, why fucking bother? It's, um, I'm not surprised John Belushi's dead. No. 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 We're getting, it's getting dark. Let's go to the next scene. Roll on, roll on. <laughs> <laughs> He's fallen down some stairs. They've gone into the basement now. He's all worrying about how... The, the orphanage is going to shut down and he's got nowhere to go. So he tells him to go and see James Brown, really. Uh, who is Reverend Cleophus James. Cleophus. Cleophus. At the Triple Rock Baptist Church. <laughs> <sighs> um, and then you go there and you get some quality James Brown movement. Oh, God, yeah. Lovely, lovely James Brown movement. Oh, God, a lot yeah. of A lot of people on trampoline movement as well. Yes. Well, two men on a trampoline constantly... Black. Black flipping? Back flipping. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> but this is constant trampolining and then Jake gets a fucking epiphany that Jesus fucking light comes in again. And he's yeah. like, oh, I've seen the light. And then he starts back flipping. Oh, that was not him. I know was... it wasn't him, but, oh. you know, it was still meant to be a tubby character back flipping. 
Zeld is joking the book. Yeah. And then, yeah, they go... Can't run away from cops, but can backflip. Yeah, he's pretty good at it. And then he backflips into this little shit dance and he backflips back. And then Elwood does the, uh, my my feet are on fire dance all the way down. I mean, that that was the most impressive thing was Dan Aykroyd's ability to keep that going. Yeah. Because I I couldn't last that for two seconds without going, oh, my fucking feet. Not all the way forward, then in a little jaunt and then all the way back. Mm. That's, that should be a athletic. Yeah. Like an Olympic sport, I think yes. that'd be quite fun. Yes, 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 yes. So yes. yeah, this epiphany where they think, oh, let's get the band back together, and then yes. we can go and have a massive gig, raise all the money. So this is the point in my in my head where I'm going to ask Sam, why? I mean, was this band big? Because I just don't get it. I think in dreams, yes, they were. I mean, it's what? it's. For the fact that they were dishwashers and waiters and... I mean, they were all very keen to get back together. Yeah, well, most. Mostly. Yeah. Mostly. Not the, uh, not the waiter guy. No. But... Sorry, he was a maitre d', wasn't Sorry, he? oh yeah, it's very Margaret. It was a very maitre d'. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, that was my first question. Was, oh, let's get back the band back together. And I just thought, that's your epiphany. Yeah, get the band back together. <laughs> and, you know... Simpler times. It was yes. really simpler times. Yes. This was before we wanted more in-depth characters and would slate people for not having in-depth characters, I think. Because by this point, you, you've not really learned anything about them mm. except that they were orphans. Because yeah. you don't know why Jake was in fucking prison. No. You don't really even know if anyone really gives a fuck that he was in prison. Yeah. You know I think only his Elwood. brother did. Yeah, you don't know anything about Elwood. Yeah. I mean, the orphanage that they grew up in couldn't give two shits about them. No, so at this point you just think they're either massive knobs or there's no real writing behind them. I think it's probably both. To be fair, if you're writing for an actor who you don't know is going to turn up half the time, you don't really put that much stock in his background. To be fair, Dan Aykroyd knew what he was getting himself into. Yeah. I mean, SNL. I mean, that's where this came from. Yeah, it was a a skit, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It got fleshed out um, and it shows. Yes. Oh my god, does it show? Um, anyway, let's go, let's keep going, let's keep going, let's keep this, let's keep this truck moving. <laughs> so they, what, the, the state troopers try and arrest them? Yeah, um, because he's got outstanding parking tickets and fines. <sighs> um, and this is your favourite scene. It, it is! Okay, I like wanton destruction. Everyone likes wanton destruction, but... I mean, the one bit that makes me feel really uncomfortable about this is innocent people could have been killed for tomfoolery. I mean, there was a lot of people who got hit. Yes. Okay. (laughs) I'll give you that one. (laughs) It's just... It was... I have to admit, it still doesn't have the same appeal to me as when I was younger. When I was younger, I loved this with all my heart. I thought it was fantastic. And it still features heavily in, like, best scenes of movies mm. and documentaries. So I'm not alone in this. So stop hammering me for it. You're just the voice right now. Uh, the I'm... voice of your people. <laughs> My people? <laughs> your people who enjoy wanting destruction <laughs> of, of a mall. You mean knuckle-draggers? <laughs> if that's what you want to call your people. <laughs> they are I'm my sure, people. I'm sure they'll appreciate that. <laughs> but it's, oh, it's just... I think it's heartbreaking now because one of the predominant stores in this, apart from like JC Penny, is Toys R Us. Oh, Jeffrey! There's millions of Jeffrey under that roof. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. 
Not after they fucking drove straight through it. It's their fault. <laughs> it's all their fault. The amount of money they had to spend just repairing that one shot. Yeah. Oh, oh, but they, it's just the reason why they do the chase. I think I would have just enjoyed the chase if they actually came out of the mall somewhere else. But they were driving around the fucking parking lot and then they go, oh, that's losing. Let's go and trash every fucking shop they can mm. in the mall. Yeah. So only come out in the exact same point that they were facing when they had the idea to go into the mall. Yeah. What the fuck? I mean, I suppose the argument is the state troopers got fucked up inside the mall along yeah. with everyone else who probably died. And that's how they got away. Well, I've just, I have just had an epiphany. How did Jesus come to you? Just. Go on. Well, in this day and age, if you like film something like that, it'd be under a terrorist thing. Yeah, they are urban terrorists. Shit. Yeah. You're rooting for the bad guys. Hang on, no, 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 no. You're rooting for the bad guys here, aren't you? No, no, no. It's okay if they're white. They can't be terrorists. It's true. But still, you're still rooting for them. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck them. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Oh, it's just... And all the shops are just made of fuck all. I mean, I understand it's for, like, dramatic... Dramatic Yeah, (laughs) everything is made of wood. But I was just like, come on, hit that one shop that actually has a fucking brick wall. Come on. Your I want to see cars. how good your car is, boy. Yeah. I mean, technically, their car should be of a later, an earlier model of the cars that the actual state troopers are. Yeah. So unless Elwood is a fully-fledged, amazing professional driver, he probably is a getaway driver. Yeah. It's just... Oh, it's he just really... couldn't get away from cops sharpish enough to save his brother. I mean, if only they just put on different clothes, then imagine. Oh, Christ. Anyway, they get away, they go to this... Was it like a hotel for men, wasn't it? A motel for men. A manly man motel. Oh, yeah, manly man home for manly men. <laughs> and just before they go in, the worst use of Carrie Fisher happens. Yeah. Where she... It was a waste of the queen. Oh, rest in peace. Where she just shoots them with a, a, a missile Yeah, launcher? rocket launcher. Yeah. Which doesn't really do much for a fucking rocket launcher. Yeah. It's a bit like, what was that made out of? Fucking toilet roll. Probably. And blows Most up the Most of the front. budget went on his coke, so... Yes, true. <laughs> Sorry, we don't have any special effects because we need to make sure there's some lines off his snout. <laughs> <laughs> Do you fucking imagine? Oh, oh so Christ. many things. And they ruined Carrie Fisher. Like, oh, what a waste. And I'm sure she didn't give a fuck either, to be I honest. think she was also partaking in the white line, so... I don't think, I mean... They probably all were in order just to get through the fucking film. <laughs> and then she, 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 and then they go inside like nothing fucking happened. And then they go and sleep in Elwood's cupboard. And then the next morning, she's back. Well, not just her, but John Candy. <gasps> yeah. Rest in peace. There's a lot of dead people in this film. No, they weren't dead at the time. I was going to say. Now. Well, I thought he was dead because he didn't see him for a while. So. Carrie Fisher blows up the manly men, home for manly men. And she probably released a lot of people from their dirge of life. Yeah, because the only people that seemed to walk out of that were Elwood and Jake. Yeah. But then later on, John Candy reappears, so they're like, oh, you didn't die. Ah. I mean, all the bricks were obviously made of rubber, that's fine. (laughs) So you're like, who the fuck is this woman? And you all, like, I don't know about you, but I was pretty much like, oh, she's probably one of their fucking... Ex-girlfriends or something. 
Because any woman with that much firepower has to be a psycho ex. Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. And then they, they start tracking down the members of the band, don't they? Mm-hmm. So they go to, oh, what was the band called? Murphy something or other, wasn't it? Yes. And playing in the Holiday Inn. Yes. Lots of purple, lots of fur. Lots of sequins. Lots of sequins in a dark, dark Holiday Inn. <laughs> as we all know Holiday Inns to be. <laughs> They're dark, dark places. And they pretty much just go, yeah, let's, let's go and do this. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, I think they'd hit rock bottom at that point. But there's about four people not watching them. Sort of see their point. Yeah. So that was the easy one. Then they go to the Mitre D. Ah, oh, the Mitre D. Uh, much for the little girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, even then, I was just like, I'm not even, I, I want to laugh, but I'm so worn I out. I you. So worn out by your presence that I can't. Oh, and th- but that was inspired. It was a good scene. It, it was, was a fucking good scene. And it was, you know, I know you don't like John Belushi in this, but he was good in that scene. That's probably the one time he was awake. Yes. In the whole film. And it's, it is just the, how much for your wife? How much for your little girls? I want them. <laughs> okay, when you do it, it's funny. <laughs> Maybe you should have been in this film. What? Let's remake it. <laughs> Blues Brothers 2018. I could see this going like... Um, Blue Sisters. <laughs> this could go horribly wrong. This could be like Lethal Weapon 5 from It's, o- it's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I'm down for this. <laughs> <Let's do it. laughs> anyway, he um yeah, they refuse to leave until this guy basically signs on the dotted line. Yeah. After drinking the expensive champagne and eating the expensive expansive? Expensive prawn cocktail. Prawn cocktail, so many times. Do you remember when that shit was classy? No. Has it ever been classy? In the seventies it was. What, along with tripe and jelly? Yeah. Mm. Jello moulds everywhere. But isn't that dog food now? No, they don't give dogs fucking tripe. <laughs> they get the good shit. They get like liver. Shit, they, they get pieces be- of animal now. They not... eat better than me. Yeah, you should Bastards. try it. some of this handmade dog food that people are giving them now. I might do that. Yeah. Fucking little shits eating. Don't better. call me when you're in the hospital. But... <laughs> <laughs> I like I like doing these pills. They're quite fun. Um, so where are we? Where are we? So yeah, they... the Mater D has lost the will to live and has rejoined the band. Oh, and then there's that really weird fucking scene with the Nazi party. Like, why? Why yeah. are they in there? Why? I have just realised that this is the second film that has Nazis in it, and it's got the man in it who I always say plays a really evil guy every time. Yeah. Uh, but then I realised that I'm just thinking about that one character in the Burbs. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, he's like the leader of the Nazi party and I got really weirded out by his American accent because to me, he's got this nondescript European accent. Yes. But, you know, they ploughed into the Nazi party, the Blues Brothers. Yeah, and then went into the river. Yeah, they should have stepped on the gas a bit more. But again... I've got some. Yeah, but again... They can trash a a shopping mall, but they can't trash the Nazi party. No, because they come back. Yeah, they come back. And then they go to the soul food restaurant, <gasps> where we see Aretha. Yes. Um. Yeah. I. I'm not saying this is. Uh, I really said it there for her. I was trying to goad her into it. Um. I have an issue. It seems saying her <laughs> name. I keep saying Aretha. <laughs> and yeah, I'm just not because I don't want her haunting me. Oh, she'll come for you anyway. Don't worry. <laughs> 
What, for liking this film? Yeah, she'd be like, ah, why? Why, child? Why? With all the other things I've done, you've chosen this. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, Miss Franklin. Yes, in, in a classic scene, a classic song. Yes. And she was fucking phenomenal in this. She she was good, but I, I just, again, sometimes I just think the music's well shoehorned in for the, because obviously it's about the blues and yes. you have to get as much music in. It's just like, did she have to sing a song? I'm glad she did. I mean, I'm glad she did, but I mean, the song's about her husband having to think about... Leaving her to go with these does. two assholes. Which he does. Yes. To be fair, she's better off without them. Yeah, she was also the only thing... So, my opinion so far is that the film's been wooden as fuck. Mm. Like, everyone can barely move or open their mouth. Mm. And in all the performances... Because even, to a degree, James Brown was a little bit wooden. Yes. She's the only one that's kind of, like... Gone out Gone out and done it. But then there's certain bits, I don't know if it's editing, where... You could just see she's just like, I've had enough doing this all day, walking up and down, walking up and down, mm. singing, or miming. But everything, the dancing in this scene was just so wooden, and Dan Aykroyd just needs to sit down, not move. Like, every time they feel the need to join in. Oh, they shouldn't. It was like watching a Mighty Boosh scene where they do, like, the ironic dance to one of their songs. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, stop participating, sit the fuck down. I think reason why all of these artists were in this film was to legitimise it. Of course. It was... You can't talk about the blues without any of the musicians in the, in the yeah. film. I mean, it's... I agree with you that they were shoehorned in because there isn't actually much of a plot. The plot itself is fucking paper thin and it's heartbreaking to say this because I adored this film. Mm. This is what got me into blues. Mm. So, you know, going back into this and it's, you know, it's so poor, the plot. And it's, I think that's probably why I got into the blues, because that was the most predominant thing in this film. Yeah. <sighs> well, at least the good thing is that, you know, you were introduced into lots of great artists. The yes. sad thing is, is that the film was a load of shit. You see, I'm not going to say it's a load of shit. But, yeah, yeah, and you're <laughs> entitled to do that. You are totally... Uh, for me, it's it's not as good as I once remembered it. I think, yeah, John Belushi wasn't as cool as I thought he was. No. But then I can watch Animal House and that would probably I'd probably think he's great again. It is the risk we run doing these rewinds. Yeah, my childhood gets shattered into pieces. And uh, yeah, I question who I once was. It's fine. I felt exactly the same about Roxanne, so you know. We'll see. Yeah, but Predator reaffirmed everything. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, Predator's fine. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> and then after after Aretha, you get to go and see Ray in Yay! Ray's Music Exchange, which was another strange shoehorn scene. Yeah, and it's um you know Ray Charles shooting a, a gun at a small child kind of freaked me out a bit more this time around, especially yeah. since he's got white reprobates in his shop. But they don't get a gun pulled on them. Yeah, but they're, they're his friends. They still owe him money. I mean, it's probably the best reason to pull a gun on you. Give him my money. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> it's just such a, a non-scene. It was just basically there for some good dancing. Yeah, apart from... That overly happy man at the front. <laughs> oh, God. If you watch it, look out for the overly happy man. <laughs> overly happy. <laughs> uh, and then... Yeah, they get all their instruments and they 
suppose go out and try and find themselves the gig, a gig. Yes, a payday. Yeah. And of course, on whilst trying to book the gig, Carrie Fisher comes back up with more firepower. Yes. Bigger, better, stronger, faster, more boom boom. And none of it killed anyone. No. Which is amazing considering how impressive the firepower actually is. It sent the phone box up into the air, didn't it? Yeah, that should have killed someone. (laughs) (sighs) But no, these guys are invincible. More than nine lives. (laughs) But then, so they survive and then they basically chance into a country bumpkin bar. Bar. Um, They say that they're the good old boys. The good old boys, that's right. And of course, it's a whole bumpkin bar. It's got the chicken wire to protect the band from flying bottles. Because apparently that's what you do in a bumpkin bar. Yeah, you drink, you have a sip and then you throw. Sip and throw. That's how you drink a beer. But I mean, some American beers do taste a bit like piss, so I'd probably yeah. do the same. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, uh. <laughs> I will say that this probably is one of my favourite scenes, only because I like Rawhide. Rawhide! I think the best thing about this scene is just the way Jake is, like, cross-armed. Hit him up! Yeah. Hit him up! And yeah. it's just like, this isn't what I signed up for, even though he signed up the gig. Did he sign up the gig, or did he just... Worm his way in like he likes to do. Yes, and it backfired on him. But he did kind of mad out. He did grab the bullwhip to do the... He did, he did. But, um, no, this is where Elwood shone. Yes. And it was nice to see. It was, it was Dan Aykroyd doing mm. his Dan Aykroyd thing. Yes. And when they started singing Stand By Your Man, that was kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good scene, but I think that, that scene is a skit. Yes. Like, you could have just condensed that. Into an SNL skit. Yeah, yeah. like, that. that is what that was. Yes. Fast forward a little bit, they complete the gig, ask for their money. But they've drank all the money, plus they, some. Plus some more. <laughs> um, obviously, Elwood says, well, you know, we didn't get charged on our first round, we thought it was free. Yeah. Which is completely fucking legitimate. They yeah. should say, oh, by the way, your beer's not free. Yeah, so then they just assume that all the beer was free. Yeah. I mean... I don't know how much beer, uh, I suppose. But given you probably the... do quite a lot. Yeah, but not $300 worth. That is... I mean, we can drink and we get nowhere near that. But we're only two people if you've got a whole band. That is true. There's about... How many? Six, seven of them? Yeah. But still. If you do... But it's just do. beers. Yeah. Could be a very expensive honky-tonk. Yeah. Uh, probably water it down and all. Exactly. That's probably why people keep throwing it around. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, so they have to scarp on and they yeah, run into the, the real good old boys. Those that man's teeth as well. Oh god. So white. So fake. So what? <laughs> so white, so fake. Oh, what were who they were trying to be? They were looking for their permit, weren't they? Have you got your music permit? permit. Oh anyway. It was a, a good scam. It was a good it scam. It bought them time. Yeah, and then they ran off. As quite rightly so. Yeah. <laughs> And then, where do they go after this? Where are they? They go to their old agent, don't they? Yes. To get that once-in-a-lifetime massive fundraising gig. Yes. Their Live Aid. Yeah. Their Live Orphanage. <laughs> and they they manage to get it, and then they go round town with a loudspeaker on their... Bluesmobile. I was nearly called it the Batmobile. It's <laughs> <laughs> really like, oh, what's it called? And yeah, they oh, go around. Christ. 
But then that alerts all of their enemies that they've just racked up. And they've racked up a lot. I mean, for such a short space of time, they have pissed off a lot of folk. But that's because they're arseholes. I'm an arsehole and I don't rack up that many enemies. They need to get you out more. <laughs> get you out more and then we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. <laughs> Tune in next episode to see how many enemies Sam's made. See how many teeth I'm missing. <laughs> <laughs> so right, we can get you to the same dentist as the guy from the good old boys. <laughs> So, yeah, so the, the ballroom gets packed, and again, the question that everyone wants to know is, will they get in there? That's not my question. My question is, were they successful in the first place? Or do people really know who they are? Are um, they there to see them? You see, this is the thing. Like, I've got a theory about this, right? They needed to make five grand, and they said to the promoter they needed to get five grand, right? And that hall seated 5,000 people. Right. I reckon they just charged a dollar. Yeah, see some music, pay a dollar. Yeah, help an orphanage. Help an orphanage. And yeah, that would make sense. I like yeah. that, I like that. Yeah. Oh, is that that? We can have that. <laughs> <laughs> and then, oh. And then, obviously, because, again, they've racked up enemies on every side of the divide, from the cops to the Nazis to rednecks. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they have to sneak into their own fucking gig. So, old mini basement man from the orphanage has to do a version of Minnie the Moocher. Yes. Which I actually quite enjoyed. Yes. I did enjoy his version, of, and I would, I would have been happy as a someone, a Paying patron. a donna. A dollar. A donna? A full kebab? To oh, watch one of these. Sorry, I'm hungry. Yeah. <laughs> Watching a full kebab to watch him <laughs> sing Minnie the Moocher. I would have been happy if it was just him all night. Yeah. Because when they finally did come on stage, and they played the song... Yes. I thought it was shit. It wasn't as good as Minnie the Major. It just, they were just a bit... Blah. Yeah, and then, oh, it's just... I mean, this is, a, this is the problem, though. It's, you've got this great fucking talent in this film, like Cab Calloway, Are Aretha Franklin. You did it! Right! Woo -woo! Yeah! <laughs> Sorry, this is a great personal moment for me. Um, <laughs> I have literally been saying urethra all fucking day. Someone make this woman a medal. da 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 <laughs> but no, you've got all this great fucking musical talent in this film that just brings their A-game to really poorly crowbarred in scenes. So when these guys do get up and sing for their big moment, it's like a fart in a fucking Tupperware box. Yeah. And it's, you know, I understand it's meant to be a great up, get up and dance moment, but it is just fucking, no, you had Cab Calloway up, up on there, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, you're kind of just like, can we send one of your professionals up, please? Yeah. <laughs> get Franklin back up there. Yeah, anyone, I don't really give a fuck which one, send one of your pros up. I mean, this is the thing, in that cafe, the minute that woman sung, I would have been like, we need to get her in the fucking band. Yeah. I would have been like, sign her up to any record label. Let's, let's get this going. Yeah. That woman should not be cooking fried chicken. She should be up on the stage. Especially if her husband was a musician. He should be like, yeah, let's go out on the road. Let's yeah. be the non-violent Icantina. Let's go and do this. <laughs> and then it would have been fine. Oh, <laughs> I've killed Sam. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Christ on the bike. Just get in your room now. <laughs> That's um, what I've got to do with it. <laughs> um, I will admit that by this point I had fallen asleep. 
uh, watching this film. I have never managed to be awake all the way through this fucking film. And I fell asleep and I didn't want to rewatch it <laughs> again. So I'm just going to let Sam tell you what happened at the end. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you see, as I said, rewatching this, I realised that it was not as good as it was in my youth. Maybe I had lower expectations in my youth. Um, very randomly, the Blues Brothers get a record contract for 10 grand. Of which they decide, okay, we'll take the five grand for the orphanage and decide to distribute the rest of it for the band and some other incidentals. And then they ask the record manager, labely person, oh, do you know, back way out of here. Because by some random chance, that guy used to be a bouncer there. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, so obviously he says, yes, I used to I used to work here. And there's one just, there's a trapdoor just behind your drummer there. Go use it. And they do, and they go into the sewer. And then it's the final scene of Carrie Fisher in the entire film where she just has a machine gun because, you know. Why not? Yeah. Keep it simple. And she misses them. Oh god! She was at fucking close range and she misses them. Hey, you finally find out what the deal is with Carrie Fisher's um, character. She is the ex of Jake. Of course she is. Of course it's Jake. Of course. Basically, Jake stood her up on their wedding day. Did he stand her up because he went to prison? No, he just didn't bother to show up. Oh. And of course, um, he begs for his life in the most pathetic way possible. He's like, oh, the car broke down. This happened. That happened. Oh, please forgive me. She fucking forgives him. <sighs> they kiss and he drops her in, in the dirt and they run off. I mean, you're, you're really selling it right now. It's... At this point, I was starting to kind of go... I think it was just seeing Carrie Fisher in that role again and how wasted she was. I think I just lost the will to live at that point. But you're always slowly closing as were mine. No, my my heart was just slowly breaking <laughs> that something that I loved so much just wasn't as good as it used to be. No. But no, there's an, an a car chase through, throughout Chicago with the police, the Nazi party, the good old boys. They're all trying to get the Bluesmobile. Um, there's a bit where they jump over a bridge. Of course. Like uh, demonstrated. Yeah, they can do it. Um, but this is why they're being chased by the Nazi party and the Nazi party mobile couldn't do it. And so there's this beautiful freefall part of the Nazi party in their car about to hit the ground. And this guy turns around to the leader and says, I've always loved you. Of course. Because, you know. That old nutshell. That old nutshell. And, of course, they go through the tarmac of the road because Hollywood, and it causes more cars to go into this hole that's now being put in the road which of course gives the Blues Brothers a chance to get further away and actually get to the town, county place, whatever they call it. Town hall. That's it. <laughs> um, and yeah, they, you know, after much blocking doorways, going up to the 11th floor. This is gripping stuff. It is. I'm crap at describing it. You're doing well. I'm just saying this is gripping. <laughs> you know, they're barricading doors behind them because obviously they've oh, they've also got the armed guard after them as well oh for god's sake yeah for a police matter oh john candy and uh, john candy yeah. is still there don't worry he's, he's still standing still there good um but they get to the office and he says back in five minutes so oh. there's 
that gives the Rosas and the armed guard and the Nazis and whoever else is chasing them a chance to get close to them. They finally pay the bill. Just as they're about to get the receipt, the handcuffs come out and uh, they're captured. Wonderful. This this is brutal. Yes. Um, <laughs> so happy I was asleep during all of this. Movement. Yes. Of movement. I mean, the fact that none of it wake you up is uh, is a bad sign. Yeah, that was, that was a deep sleep. <laughs> Actually, no, I did wake up at uh, the credits. Mm. That woke me up. Mm. But yeah, I don't. And uh, yeah, I don't. I don't feel like I've missed anything. I assume they've gone to jail. Yeah, um, they've gone to jail, and it ends with them doing uh, jailhouse rock. Oh. <laughs> Jesus. Sorry for saying Jesus a lot in this. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so are they are they playing Jailhouse Rock? Yes, or they're are playing. They, so is it like a, a prison wide thing or are yes, they on stage? They're on stage in I what I think is the cafeteria because there's a lot of tables. It's the cliched oh. performance in a prison. Oh, as done by Elvis himself yes. in said film. Yes. Wonderful. Um, and then credits, everyone starts singing, and they all have a bit of a dance. So, was what was the rating? It was 60 on Metacritic, which is just above average. I personally would give this a 40. Below average. Just below average. I mean, that whole 40 is for all the musicians. Yes. Um, I'd love to give them more, but they didn't get enough time. If you had... If I had done this 10 years ago, I would have said that 60 was a travesty. It should have been an 80, 85. Mm. As I sit here now, heartbroken, uh, questioning everything I've ever loved, I'm going to say that 60 is a fair score for it. Interesting. No, I'm looking at it more closely and with more scrutiny, and you see its flaws. It's it's not good. Watching Um, things with adult eyes just ruins everything. Yeah. It's kind of heartbreaking because this film, I used to put this film on to cheer myself up and having it as it is now is just, it's heartbreaking because I did love this film and to see it through the eyes that I saw it through the other night, it was just a bit of a kick in the gut really. Well at least, you know, the positive is that you haven't had to put it on for a long time to cheer yourself up. That is, that is a good point and it's... Again, we do grow out of things. I think that's the key thing. I've grown out of it. Yeah, I've got a few films that I've yeah. grown out of. You know, the music's still fucking fantastic. Oh, I yeah, still definitely. love the soundtrack. And, you know, this this film got me into blues music. So I'm not going to shit on it because, you know, it, it's, it did have a good impact on my life, you know, musically. But I just think now I probably wouldn't watch it again. Mm. And that's kind of, a sh- kind of a shitter. I don't know what I'm going to do with my Blu-ray of it. We can keep it. Pass it down to your children. Your children's children. Your children's children's children. Yeah. But no, I think 60 was a decent score for this. So um, we meet in the middle? It's a 50. 50 for my gen. It's, yeah. It's not as good as it used to be. Definitely a fence sitter. Oh, yeah. Oh, what's in the box? What's in the fucking box? Right. Now we actually have the box with us for our rewatches. Jill. <laughs> Pick it, baby. Pick a gun. Get it in the box. And our next rewind is... Drum roll, please. 
Trading places! Another bit of Acroid love. Loving it, loving it, loving it. Thank you so much for joining us for episode three. I'm Sam. And I'm Jill. See you later.